Crimson Tide is the movie I want you to think about this morning to begin with. If you don't like sermons that have movies in them, let's call it a film. The opening scene, or one of the opening scenes in Crimson Tide has Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington on top of the submarine. They're still outside. The submarine's still on top. It hasn't gone down yet. And it's a classic scene because the sun is going down just before they go down. It's just this great kind of awe-inspiring scene. Hans Zimmer music playing in the background. It's classic. And Denzel Washington is saying nothing. They're smoking cigars, taking it all in. Hackman says, this is my favorite part, right here, right now. Silence, cigar smoke. Washington says, sir, Hackman, you knew to shut up and enjoy the view. Most eggheads want to talk it away. He says, bravo, Hunter. I love that scene. If you can't relate and you haven't seen it, and I haven't done a very good job of explaining it, you can understand this. A great, awe-inspiring, moving, emotional kind of scene. A sunrise, a sunset, a mountainous kind of view. And you're with someone who, unlike Denzel Washington, won't shut up. And they ruin the whole thing. I was in Cape Town, South Africa one time, and I was on top of Table Mountain. Some people consider it one of the most breathtaking, on a clear day, the best view, top seven in the world I've read. It's awesome, amazing. The only way I could get there that day after preaching in a church is to find someone. I was dropped off in the morning at this church and they said, if you want to do anything in the afternoon, you have to find someone to take you. And the church had a young intern. And he said, is there anything I could do for you today, Pastor? I said, yes, you can take me to up, up, up there. So he did. He was gracious and kind, and so I shouldn't say what I'm about to say. The guy wouldn't shut up. He was the egghead. I just wanted to sit there. I just wanted to stand there. I just wanted to be in awe. It's a clear day. It's awesome, amazing, top seven place in the world. And he just would not shut up. It was terrible. I hated it. I wanted to go hide from him. In John 17, which is where we're going to be this morning, the 17th chapter of the gospel according to John, I don't want to be the egghead. John 17 can just stand on its own. In one sense, I just want to read John 17, but that's not what preaching is. Okay? The Bible says we're to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Scripture reading, reading is, is of great value. But we're also called to preach, which involves explaining things. Exhortation, challenging, comforting, encouraging. And so I, I'm going to try to preach John 17... And be as good of a non-egghead, I don't know how to say it, as possible. 
But my encouragement to you really is to do your very best to, to just stand in awe. I'm going to interrupt you a few times. Of, of Jesus and what he prays for and how he prays. In John 17, he starts out by praying for himself. Then he prays for his immediate disciples. And then he prays for everyone who would ever believe. So now we're talking about the us's of the world. And it is amazing. It is amazing, amazing, amazing. Even when we're talking about him praying for the disciples, just know that when he gets to the rest of us, he basically says the same thing. So pay attention to all of it. There's nothing like the awe-inspiring, breathtaking nature of Jesus praying for us in John 17. I think maybe someday if I have to candidate at another church, I think I should, I should probably preach John 17 because number one, it will not be a good sermon from, as far as sermons go, but it'll probably tell me whether or not the people there really love Jesus. It's awesome. It is awesome. Let's go ahead and look at the text. Verses 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We spent a whole Sunday on that. I'm itching to go back. I'll just say this. It's the kind of passage that people who teach you can lose your salvation don't like to talk about. Jesus accomplished the work given to him to do by his Father, and he's successful. This passage and the rest of it, it's what theologians call this passage the Pactum Salutis. So we're all theologians, time to learn some Latin. The Pactum, think of a pact, an agreement, a covenant of salvation, Salutis. The Father and the Son in eternity past had a plan, a purpose to save sinners. And the Son is sent by His Father and those who the Father gives to the Son, the Son successfully works on their behalf. It's amazing. It's also called the covenant of redemption. The agreement, the formal agreement between the Father and the Son, 
and the son is successful. I did the work you gave me to do. That's why we have assurance of salvation. It's amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And now, and now we move on, and he's going to pray for his disciples because he's leaving. That's the context. And then he's going to pray for all disciples after that. And so let's dig in in verse 6. I have manifested or revealed or made known with clarity your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. See, he's successful. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. It's awesome. This is, this is amazing. This is maybe going to shatter your view of God, though. But just hang in there. It's okay to let loose your view of God if it's not the God of the Bible made known through Jesus. Jesus is successful in making His name, His person, who He really is, known. And who did He succeed in making Him known to? To the people whom you gave me out of the world. See, there's a plan, there's a purpose. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. This is absolutely amazing. The word is used commonly in John for, for the, the revelation of God, the Jesus himself, uh, the gospel. So here, you sent me, Father, and, and you sent me, and what you did is you gave me these people who belong to you, that I would represent them. And I've successfully done that. I've accomplished the work. We saw that in verses 1 to 5. And, and, and it's worked, if you will. Because they've kept your word. He, he's saying they've come to believe in me. They've come to accept my revealing of you, chapter 1. This is not a Savior who tries his best. This is a Savior who saves. This is staggering. Verse 7, Now... They know that everything that you have given me is from you. Further explanation of that, verse 8, For I have given them the words, the revelation, right, that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and that they have believed that you sent me. I have three X's in my notes and then I wrote in my margins, say nothing. He's praying for them and, and he's praying to his father, I did everything that you wanted me to do and I've succeeded in doing it and they've responded positively and they know that I'm not a rogue prophet. They know that I'm not trying to start something new. They know that I've come from you and all of this is the right revelation. This is really, really, really impressive. 
They've come to know in truth that I've come from you. And remember in chapter 14, he is the truth. The, the, the truth personified. That they would know the true God, the truth about God. How can you know the true God if you don't know the truth about God? And the way that this happens is through Christ and only through Christ. Which creates hostility and he's going to get to that. This is how, by the way, we could have Jude say that we have the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. It's not an evolving faith. It's not changing. It's not getting better. It's not getting worse. But because of what Jesus did successfully, the work is done and we can now know God. How about verse 9? I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Let that settle in a little bit. Now, you have two options. You can either be offended by that because it doesn't fit your view of Jesus and God and how you'd like the world to exist. (laughs) Or maybe you even just heard it for the first time and you can just go, wow. wow." that, That might even require me to change a little bit about what I believe. I would invite you to to have that happen. (laughs) This is amazing. Jesus isn't trying even in his high priestly prayer. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna pray in a general kind of way and just kind of hope some of it sticks and... No, it's all planned and purposed. He's going to pray for these because they are the fathers and they were given to him and he's the loyal son. And he's going to succeed in doing the work that his father gave him to do. (laughs) What, What do we say to this? The triune God, united in purpose, sure purpose, certainty kind of purpose. I want you to move from being discomforted, if you are, by that, because that's kind of the natural rub, right? And, and have it be this great source of comfort. Yes! He's my Savior! And He saves. And when He prays, how about this? His prayers are always, let's use a big word, effectual, effective. They, they, they work. I mean, He's like the ultimate from James, the ultimate human being because He is as the God-man. The, the, the ultimate example of the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. He is the righteous man, and what he asks for is always answered in the positive. Verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Perfect unity, perfect harmony. How about 
No frustration. The plan isn't frustrated. Sometimes we think, well, you know, the, the father wants a certain thing to happen. And then the son seems to be wanting a different thing to happen. Or we get it, or vice versa. And, you know, maybe they're frustrated. I learned so much Bible and so much theology and so many of these kinds of things from a man named S. Lewis Johnson, Samuel Lewis Johnson. Taught Greek, taught theology at Dallas Theological Seminary for years. He eventually got fired for saying things about this passage and other passages similar like I'm saying today. Because he would say in his southern accent, which I'm not very good at imitating, he would say, what we don't have is a frustrated deity. Not a very good S. Lewis Johnson imitation. The Lord God is not frustrated. The triune God is not frustrated. Perfect unity, perfect purpose together, given by the Father to the Son who faithfully represents them so that He can give them salvation because He accomplished the work that was given to Him to do. There is no Savior like Him. There just isn't. No frustration. We've already learned about the Spirit in chapter 14 and chapter 16, and if you want to get the Spirit involved as well, there's no frustration from Him either. I've got to work on that accent a little bit. I'm kind of disappointed. Just for fun, yesterday I just wanted to make sure that I had it right because it's stuck in my head. I could just hear him saying it. I used to listen to cassette tapes when I was in seminary and I was working for an electrician. And so I would just listen to these cassette tapes and all day long just learning theology from S. Lewis Johnson. And so I, I did a Google search yesterday and just put in like S. Lewis Johnson, frustration, frustrated. And it's like sermon after sermon after sermon, lecture after lecture after lecture. So I, it, he really did say it. Do notice it, that this happens in verse 10, and I'm glorified in them. So by, by this perfect work that's accomplished on their behalf, he's, he's glorified in them. When you trust in Jesus for eternal life, you glorify the Son. Because you're evidence that he succeeded It honors him, the one who forgives. Let's move on now to verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. He's speaking now as if he's already died, been raised and ascended. He does this with some frequency because it's as good as done. It's that sure. Then it says in verse 11, Holy Father, Keep them in your name. He's praying now for believers, right? The, the, the 11 at this point. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So what's happening? What's happening is Jesus is leaving. So Father gives them to the Son. The Son provides for them perfect redemption. Work is accomplished. Now the Son is leaving and he prays to his Father, take care of them. While I'm gone, 
We already know it's going to be through the power of the Spirit that that happens. Chapter 14, chapter 16. But that's his prayer. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Remember holiness, and this is going to come up and it's going to get repeated because we're going to talk about our holiness and Jesus' holiness. So it's, this is going to carry on. But for now, it's just no. Holy means different, means distinct, means separate, means unique. Holy Father, different Father, distinct Father. Here I am in the world where there's hostility. You're the distinct one. You're the powerful one. And therefore, you can keep them. You can protect them. You can make sure that they succeed to the very end. It's the keeping power of God. Holy Father. And think about this. Human beings say they're going to do things all the time and they don't do it. And sinful people say things are going to do all things all the time and they might be well-meaning and they don't do it. Jesus is not calling on the disciples to keep themselves here. Holy Father, different one, one who has power that the world hasn't seen other than in God, who is faithful, who will always do what he says he's going to do. He's that distinct kind of being. Holy Father, keep them. See, he can keep as a holy one like nobody could keep. This is going to happen. This is sure to happen. More about this in verse 12. He's saying, protect them. And do this, do this that they may be one even as we are one. Now, if, if us being one and united is related to, directly linked to the Father keeping us, is it going to happen? It's going to happen. That's why, in my opinion, and I wouldn't want to get in a big argument about this, you can have a different view, that's fine. I don't think he's talking about practical unity here. He's talking about sure spiritual unity. Father, keep them, that they would be one, that they would be believing in me, that they would be believers that are united because of the commonality of faith in me. I think they're going to be kept, and therefore they're going to be one. Let's keep going. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Again, he's not rogue. They're together in the plan. Back in verse 3, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So I've been keeping them. Who, who did he keep? The ones given to him by the Father. And he was successful. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do back in 1 to 5. So I kept them when I was here. Oh, and don't give me this objection about Judas. Different story altogether. I succeeded doing what you told me to do. And now, Father, I'm praying because I'm not going to be here. Would you keep them just as I kept them? This isn't complicated, right? It's impressive. But it's not complicated. Maybe that's what bu bugs some people so much. It's not complicated. Let's keep going. Thirteen. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
I'm leaving them. I kept them. I need you to keep them. And I want them to be kept because they'll be unified as one, these believers. They're not going to start 11 cults. And I want this to happen also so that they would have this unique, special joy that they would have my joy. Which is interesting because earlier in the opening in his prayer, he talked about the joy given to him, which was kind of ironic because it's going to take him to the cross. Okay? Not very joyous. But then he's going to be glorified and he will have a unique, extraordinary, special kind of joy. Because he's going to overcome sin, death, the devil, destruction, and suffering. So as the Father keeps the believers together and one with him and one with Christ, as that happens, which is what Jesus is praying, they will be together in this, and they will have a unique, extraordinary, special kind of joy that comes from Christ who's going to be successful in his suffering on their behalf and successful in his resurrection on their behalf as well as ascension. Jesus has already told them that they're going to have difficulty and they're going to have persecution and hostility and it went back to, they, they persecuted me and I'm Christ and you're called Christians. Simple way to think of it. You're going to face hostility. So Jesus is praying to his father, I'm leaving, keep them, protect them. Sustain them and give them this special, unique kind of joy that's my joy because of what I'm going to do. On this week in 1536, William Tyndale was tied to a stake, strangled and burned. His crime? Translating the Bible into English so that people like us could read the Bible for ourselves and learn that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because of the authority of Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, like we sang this morning, or we heard. What joy is there in being strangled and burned at the stake? There's none. Unless... You're united to Christ by faith. And now, His joy is your joy because He has died and has been raised from the dead. And He's been raised on behalf of everyone who would ever believe in Him so that they would be raised, with absolute certainty be raised. It's pretty good stuff. Why would we talk about anything else? Because the reality is, as you sit here, you're promised conflict because of your faith in Christ. I hope you don't just go looking for it. But because of your commitment to the gospel, because of God's commitment to you, because you believe that salvation is of the Lord, and you believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him, you're promised conflict. It might not lead to your death, martyrdom. Not to mention the fact that 
conflict or no conflict, we still live in a fallen world with suffering of other kinds, and we are all going to breathe our last breath. Molly said to me this week, well, you know, just don't die. And I said, I will. She meant soon. (laughs) And you will too. And there's an unspeakable, special special kind of joy that's found only in Christ. And as he prays for believers, he prays to his Father that his Father would keep them. And in being kept, there's this joy that would come only from Christ. I want you to have that kind of joy. We need to remind each other of this. Joy in Christ that transcends opposition and suffering. What, what, what a thoughtful, faithful Savior Jesus is. Isn't it interesting? He could have prayed about anything. Well, he actually couldn't have, but that's kind of a trick statement. He's going to pray for what's most important. Well, don't need to pray for their joy because, you know, this is... Easy life. No. I'm going to pray for, for their joy that it would be mine. Okay, let's keep going. This brings us to verse 14. I have given them your word. Now, I'm, I'm going to risk being the egghead here. Um, but I'm, I am called to preach this. I have given them your word. I wrote in my margin... Your word, Holy Father. Because I want to remember that that's who, who, who he was addressing. The word being the revelation of God in Christ, the way to eternal life, I have given that to them. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now think about this. Think about how toward the end they're not of the world. Not of the world. He doesn't use the word holy, but that's what he's describing. Distinct. In the world, he's using it in a hostile kind of sense, who's sinful people who are against God in his ways. And he's saying, the believers are not of the world. They're holy. They're distinct. They belong to you by virtue of the gospel. And I'm not of the world either. I'm holy. I'm distinct as the Savior of the world. And so with that in mind, I think it helps to make more more sense. The world has hated them because they are not of the world. Here's what that means in in the way we think in, in our lives. We are believing in the Word of God. In general, yes. In specific Focus in John, we're believing God's word. We're, we're believing the revelation of God in Christ regarding forgiveness and eternal life. That's what we believe. And we believe, John 14, 6, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but by Him. So that's what we believe. And that gives, that brings hostility from those who don't believe that, 
who think that people are generally good or maybe good outweighs their bad or a little bit of a religious jump start might help or all people are generally good and trying and God's just going to take all that into consideration. As Christians, we say, no, no, Jesus is the Savior. And you have to believe in Jesus. It's wonderful. It's awesome. It's good news. But you, you must believe in Jesus. And if you don't, you're going to get what you deserve, which is condemnation. John three eighteen. And I hope we say it with a smile. And I hope we say it as good news announcers. I want you to believe in Jesus so you can be forgiven, so you can be restored, so you can be promised eternal life, so you can have a joy that is unspeakable. But the question does come, what if I don't? Well, I have it on good authority. The one who knows God and the one who came from heaven, the eternal one, that it means condemnation for you. No hope. And it's who do you think you are? Well, hello, my name is Pat. I'm a sinner. But I'm believing in a powerful Savior who's the only one who's been raised from the dead. But see, that creates hatred and conflict. And Jesus is talking about that here. We're holy in that sense. We're, 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 we're distinct. We're different. And that's why Jesus prays to the Father that he would keep us. Because sometimes the pressure gets so great that you want to cash it in. And you want to think, this isn't worth it. The price is too high. Father, keep them. Holy Father, keep them. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. That would, that, would, that would be holy in a different sense, right? He's not praying for that kind of holiness here. But that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He's not saying well maybe I should put it a different way we'll, we'll end on this we are very much of the world in a different sense but spiritually speaking because we've believed in Jesus for salvation and we've been reconciled to God in that sense, we're not of the world. We're, we're, we're marching to the beat of a different drummer. We have a substitute. We have a Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so it makes us different and distinct. And we're believing that He is the one. And that makes it us distinct. It creates conflict. But He's not saying Christians speak different languages. He's not saying... Christians are the people who wear certain kinds of clothes. He's not saying Christians are the ones who live in the communes or the monasteries or, the, or Montana. I shouldn't have said that. Um, Colorado Springs. I think all Christians are supposed to live there. I'm... My point is, what makes us different and what creates the hostility, what's supposed to create the hostility is not the other weird things. What creates the hostility, what's meant to create the hostility, is the word of the true Savior, the word of the gospel. 
And that makes it makes us Christians and that makes us different and that creates the rub. I don't want to stop. We need to stop. We're going to stop in verse 17, but maybe just by way of preview, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He uses the same word that he addresses the Father when he says, Holy Father. Same Greek word. Holy Father, I'm going to pray for the believers that they would be holy. Distinct and different. In the right sort of ways. And then Jesus says, He makes Himself holy. He sanctifies Himself. And if you think we're in the deep end of the pool now, you just wait till next week. Because the way we get sanctified and become more holy, which is the prayer request of Jesus, is ultimately because Jesus, unlike any of us, sanctifies Himself. And no one in their right mind could ever say they sanctify themselves unless they are the perfect high priest like Jesus is who voluntarily sanctifies himself on behalf of his people so that he could then pray for our sanctification to his Father and know that it would happen. It is amazing. Absolutely amazing. I think we'll have an altar call after the service and all of you can come forward and lay your idols down and uh, all of these gods that we've made in our own image according to our own likeness um, and we're going to repent and believe in Jesus. Uh, Joking aside, we're not doing that. But, but this Jesus we're talking about is, is unmanageable. <laughs> he, 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 he cannot be domesticated. He is not like a house pet. He, 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 he transcends our expectations. He doesn't fit in our molds. Uh, uh, we, we need new molds. Um, as, as one Protestant reformer said, the human heart is an idle factory. And that's one of the reasons why this is just such a rub to us. But again, be offended if you need to be. And then be rejoicing. A Savior who saves. A plan from God that succeeds. Amazing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who's better and beyond and above what we might ever even imagine. And we're thankful that he is not limited by our imaginations or our sinful, depraved minds. We are so thankful that he came here and he spoke and he spoke with clarity and he spoke with boldness. He used repetition. He used illustrations. He used so many different things so that we might understand. And here he's praying, praying so that we might hear so that we might know and understand. Thank you that you have certainly answered your son's prayer in the affirmative. And we're thankful to be in him. Encourage us as we go today. In Jesus' name, amen.